Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. The cross, it was the most brutal and degrading form of capital punishment that was available to the Roman government in the first century. It was a punishment that the Romans had, had, had perfected and they reserved it for the most vile and heinous of all criminals. It was a punishment that was so extreme that all Roman citizens were automatically exempt from the cross. It was a punishment that was commonly preceded by a flogging, these 40 lashes minus one, which would absolutely mutilate the flesh from the top of the shoulders all the way down their backside to the bottom of their calves. The flogging in and of itself left many of its victims dead. The cross, it was designed to inflict as much pain as inhumanely as possible, taking five to seven inch spikes and and nailing them into the victim's wrists and their feet, severing the nerves and causing their arms to spasm. The only way that you could breathe on the cross was to push yourself up on your nail-pierced feet, hold yourself with uh, with your nerves severed on your arms and your dislocated shoulders, And whenever you were upright, your lungs would be able to expand and contract, and you would hold yourself there as long as you possibly could until you could no more, and then you would have to drop down, and you would rest down as long as you could until you could no longer breathe, and you would push yourself back up again, and you kept doing this motion over and over and over again until your legs just gave out, and you died whenever you no longer were able to create enough oxygen to stay alive. The cross, it was so brutal, it was so extreme that they even created a word to attempt to define what it was. And the word that they created was excruciating, which literally means out of the cross. Now listen, Jesus who being in very nature God, meaning that Jesus was not promoted to God, he was not born into being like an under God, and he didn't have to go to school to study to become God. He was God. He is God. Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, Being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. But we are not here today to mourn a death. But instead, we are here today to celebrate an event. We're here today to celebrate an event that has made believers out of numerous skeptics, an event that has brought great comfort to numerous sufferers, an event that has given direction to numerous wanderers, an event that literally changed everything. However, on that very first Easter, it was an event 
that nobody expected, especially those who were closest to Jesus. I mean, where we take a step back, that makes sense, right? I mean, we're dealing with real people here who had real relationships and, and, and real emotions, and they had just watched their friend, their leader, their teacher, their Lord be executed in the most brutal way imaginable. And Jesus' earliest followers anticipated that Jesus would do what all other dead people do. Stay dead. And so whenever you take a step back and you look at this story, it's really no surprise that the that very first Easter Sunday, it kind of plays out like this. Beginning in Mark chapter 16, it says, When the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome, they went and they bought spices so that they might go to anoint Jesus' body. Everything had taken place so fast over the past couple of days. I mean, within a matter of hours, Jesus had gone from being in the upper room, sharing a meal with his disciples, washing his disciples' feet, teaching them the things that he wanted them to to most remember, praying for them, to to going to the garden and and, and praying, Father, if, if there's any way, please take this cup away from me, but not my will, but your will be done, to being betrayed in the garden, to being arrested in the garden and being put before a a series of trials that were nothing short of mockery, to being condemned, to being beaten, and ultimately being executed and buried. And because all of this was taking place around the Passover, the rule was that all work had to be done by sunset on Friday. And so after Jesus died, uh, uh, Joseph of Arimathea and and Nicodemus, they quickly took Jesus' body and they put it in the tomb. And there was only time for a very, very quick embalming of Jesus' body before he was ultimately buried. And so after the Sabbath was over, this was the first moment that people could get out after the Sabbath. It made sense that the women, knowing that Jesus was not properly embalmed the first time, they went and they bought the spices. They went and they bought everything that they needed to properly embalm Jesus' body. And so early that day, they got up and they made their way to the tomb. Uh, Verses 2 tells us that just after sunrise, they were on their way to the tomb. And they asked each other this question. It's such a good question. Who will roll the stone away from the entrance of the tomb? It's such a good question. The women, they knew exactly where Jesus had been buried. They knew that that, that there had been a large stone that had been rolled in front of the tomb. And they are going there to embalm the body of Jesus. So their question is, how in the world are we going to get to the body of Jesus? Who's going to move the stone? But we learned something here about the women. At this moment on that first Easter Sunday, not a single part of them was expecting resurrection. But whenever they looked up, verse 4 tells us, they they saw that the stone, which was very large, had already been rolled away. And so the women, they turn around and they go to find the disciples. And they found the disciples in the same place that you always found the disciples after the crucifixion huddled together behind a locked door out of fear of the Jewish leaders. And again, this is one of those things that it just makes sense. 
Jesus wasn't the first person to, to claim to be the Messiah. There were other people throughout history who had claimed to be the Messiah. And once they were found out to be false messiahs, the religious leaders would do whatever they had to do to stop that movement, often threatening the followers of the supposed Messiah. And so Jesus' followers, they're hiding, they're scared, thinking that they are next on the Jewish leader's hit list. And then John, he picks it up in, in, in chapter 20, verse 2. He says that they came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved. This is John's own nickname for himself. And he said, now notice the pronoun here. The, the women said, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb. And we don't know where they have put them. In other words, they show up to the disciples and they're like, something's happened. We don't know what. We don't know who. And we don't know how to explain it. Maybe it was the gardener, right? I mean, we, we read about this gardener in some of the other gospel accounts. Maybe it was the soldier. Maybe they're thinking that the soldiers did something with Jesus' body. Jesus being a high-profile person. Maybe they're thinking that one of the common grave robbers came and did something with Jesus' body. They don't know what's going on. They just know that something's happened and Jesus isn't where he's supposed to be. But the disciples, the Jesus followers... They did not believe the women because their words seemed like nonsense. Is that you? Whenever you hear about the cross, whenever you hear about the resurrection, does it just come off as nothing short of nonsense? After all, like dead people stay dead? If that's you today, I just want you to know that you're in really, really good company. Because the people who spent the most time with Jesus, the people who followed Jesus day after day after day, whenever they first heard the reports of the empty tomb, they brushed them off as nothing more than nonsense. It's the reason that the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 says that the message of the cross is foolishness to those who don't believe. It just doesn't make sense. But once again, we see this common theme. As the disciples first heard about the empty tomb, resurrection never crossed their mind. But a couple of the disciples, they decide that they're going to go and have a look for themselves to try and find out what's going on. Luke tells us in, in chapter 24 and verse 12, Peter, he got up and he ran to the tomb and bending over, probably trying to catch his breath, he saw the strips of linen lying there by themselves and he went away. Wondering, what in the world is going on here? John's gospel tells us that he was there too. He actually tells us that he and Peter kind of raced to the tomb, and John was just a little bit faster than Peter. And maybe all the disciples wanted to go, but they just felt like it was too dangerous for this large group of Jesus followers to all move together, that it would make them stand out just a little bit too much. Or maybe this was just like the most Peter response ever. Like, I mean, whenever you read about Peter, he never did anything halfway. Peter was full go. He was full of highs and he was full of lows. And maybe this is Peter. This is how Peter was trying to process the guilt that he was experiencing. Because just a couple of days earlier, he looked Jesus in the eye and he said, Jesus, I am willing to die for you. And Jesus looked at him and he said, Peter... 
before the rooster crows, you're going to deny me three times. And then he did. And maybe for the past couple of days, Peter's just been sitting there and stewing and like living in this pool of guilt. And so now he's found out that Jesus isn't where Jesus is supposed to be. So he's going to go and try and find out what's going on. He's going to find who it is that has taken Jesus' body. And he's going to make sure that Jesus' body is not disrespected. But whatever the case may be, we notice this familiar theme. They walked away wondering what in the world has happened. And if I'm being honest with you, this is like one of my favorite sub-stories in the, in, in the Easter story. I love that the gospel writers included their own logical skepticism. I love that they didn't try and just gloss over it and make it all look pretty, make it look like they were the most faithful people to ever live. I love that they documented their own disbelief. I love that they documented their own hopelessness, that even when looking into an empty tomb after everything that Jesus had said, they didn't suspect resurrection until later on that day, on the evening of the first day of the week, when the disciples were together with the doors locked for fear of the Jewish leaders, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Luke, the historian, the, the one who says that he has thoroughly investigated everything that he's putting into his gospel account, he documents the same encounter in, verse, in, in chapter 24 and verse 36. He says that, And while they were still talking, Jesus himself stood among them and said, Peace be with you. And then the understatement of the entire story. And they were startled and frightened, thinking that they saw a ghost. Yet Jesus said to the disciples, why are you so troubled? And why do doubts rise in your mind? Why are you so troubled? And why do doubts rise in your mind? So it just has this little feeling, doesn't it? One of the most common questions that Jesus always asked his disciples. Why are you so afraid? Why are you so afraid? Do you remember the story? They're on a boat in the middle of the sea. There's this massive storm that's taking place, and Jesus is down at the bottom of the boat taking a nap. And the disciples go down, and they shake Jesus. Wake up, wake up, we're going to die. And Jesus looks at him, and he says, Why are you so afraid? Why are you so troubled? Why do you allow these, these doubts to rise in your mind? And honestly, the disciples had a really, really good answer. The answer is because the last time we saw you, you were dead. And now you're not. And we don't know how to reconcile that in our little minds. So yes, we're afraid, but, but Jesus said to, to them, and I want you to hear them. this. He says, this is what I told you while I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses and in the prophets and in the Psalms. Why are you so troubled? I told you that this was going to happen. Not only did I tell you this was going to happen, I told you that this had to happen. That everything in human history up to this point in time has been pointing forward to this moment in history. 
And then he says to his disciples, and I believe he says the same thing to me and to you, to all the future followers of Jesus. And everything that happens from this moment in history will be pointing back to this moment in history. And he told them, this is what is written. The Messiah will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day and repentance for the forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name. And notice this, to all nations. No longer is this just an Israelite thing, but to all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. And then verse 48, so powerful here. You are witnesses of these things. Jesus did not say these words just in the middle of some sort of casual conversation. No, no, no. He said these words as a charge to his disciples. To a group of followers who, who, who some of them had denied Jesus. All of them had abandoned Jesus while he was on the cross. He now tells them that you are now witnesses to an event that's going to change everything. They had given up. They had lost hope. But now, but now they are witnesses. Church, can I tell you something? We can have confidence in hope. We can have confidence in life. We can have confidence in the future. And yes, we can have confidence in resurrection. Not solely because the Bible says he is risen. But because of the eyewitness testimony who saw the risen Christ. We have people like Matthew... This one who spent two and a half to three years of his life following Jesus everywhere that he went. He documented his own account of Jesus' life for us, his eyewitness account of his life for us. We have somebody like Mark, this one who is a follower of Peter, who documented Peter's account of Jesus' life. We have Luke, who was a great, he was a doctor, he was a, a highly educated man, a historian, who said, I have thoroughly investigated everything that I am claiming to you. We have a man like John, who was not just one of the disciples, he was one of the inner three disciples. He was there during the transfiguration. He saw things that not everybody got to see. He was literally with Jesus everywhere. And he gives us his eyewitness account to what took place in Jesus' life. We have the eyewitness testimony of Peter through the Gospel of Mark, but also through the letters that Peter wrote to the church saying, this is what I've seen. This is what I know. We see the transformation of Peter. He went within 50 days. You got that 50 days from a man. From a man who was calling down curses on a little girl because she said he was a follower of Jesus. To all of a sudden standing up on the day of Pentecost in Jerusalem, the scene of the crime, the crime looking out at a crowd of thousands of people, thousands of people who would have been the very ones who were shouting, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him on that awfully good Friday. And he looks at them and he says, it's your fault that he's gone. Where did this boldness come from? Where did it come from that Peter all of a sudden would be willing to say, it's your fault that he's gone? You're the ones who crucified him. You're the ones who handed him over. 
And the crowds, they were cut to the heart. They were convicted. They didn't know what to do. So they come to Peter and they come to John and they say, what, what, what do we do now? And he replied, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, for the forgiveness of your sins and for the gift of the Holy Spirit. This promise is for you. This promise is for your children. And this promise is for all of those who are far off. Something happened that changed Peter. He witnessed something that took him from calling down curses to proclaiming the resurrection of Jesus. We have the eyewitness testimony of of James, and this one's huge. I mean, James, the literal half-brother of Jesus. A man who thought that his brother was a complete lunatic and nut job all throughout his ministry. And it wasn't until Jesus resurrected from the dead that James finally believed that Jesus was the Son of God, that he was the Messiah, that he was his Lord. And anytime I talk about James, I just have to ask this question. For those of you who have a brother, what would it take for your brother to convince you that he was the Son of God? For James, it took his brother living and dying and being alive again. And it changed everything for James. He became a leader in the church, again, in Jerusalem, at the scene of the crime. He became a man who thought that his brother was a nut job to proclaiming his brother as his Lord. He led the church in the original hotspot of Christian persecution. And then we have the testimony of a man like Paul, who within a couple of years started proclaiming and preaching the historical evidence of the resurrection. Not decades later, not centuries later, but shortly after the resurrection, the apostle Paul starts talking about it. And then you add this onto it. Every single one of these people outside of John and every single one of the disciples outside of Judas who hung himself after he he betrayed Jesus and John Every single one of these people died a martyr's death because they would not shut up about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And and, and it brings us to what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. He, He shares with us this creed that most scholars believe on a very conservative basis dates back to within a couple of years. Again, not decades after, but within a couple of years of the resurrection of Jesus, of the event itself. And on the most aggressive timelines, they date it back to within just a couple of months of the resurrection. And 1 Corinthians is one of those interesting books in Scripture. It's probably one of the most interesting books in Scripture because for for all the people who are skeptics over the, the authenticity of Scripture and different things, whenever they look at 1 Corinthians, they don't know what to do with it because they know who it was written by and when it was written and to whom it was written. And so it's one of the most universally accepted books in the entire canon. And Paul, he shares this creed that dates back very shortly after the resurrection. And this creed, it's just this short, concise little saying that would help them to distribute important information quickly and concisely. And this is what he says in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. I want you to notice the tense in which Paul speaks with. He says, Now, brothers and sisters... I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you. In other words, this isn't the first time you're hearing this. 
which you have received and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel, you are saved if you hold firmly to the word I preach to you. Otherwise, if you do not hold firmly to the word of the resurrection, you have believed in vain. For what I received, in other words, these are not Paul's original words, what he received, he passed on as of first importance. That Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. That he was buried and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. And that he appeared to Cephas and then he appeared to the twelve. And after that, he appeared to more than 500 brothers and sisters at the same time. Most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, and then to all the apostles. Then last of all, he appeared to me also as to one abnormally born. I'm telling you, man, I don't know if, there's, if you can come up with a more bold statement than what Paul makes here. He's basically saying, don't take my word for it. If you don't want to believe me, that's fine. I'm telling you that there are still hundreds of people in Jerusalem who were alive, who saw the resurrected Christ. So don't take my word for it. Go and talk to them. Go and take a road trip. Get the firsthand accounts if you need to. That's such a bold statement. And if he knew that he was not telling the truth, the entire Jesus movement would have ended right then and right there. But instead, here we are 2,000 years later, still celebrating the victory of the resurrected Christ. And this is what it comes down to here. Jesus appeared to many hundreds of people after the resurrection in many different places at many different times. And these people, they became witnesses. To the event and this creed that Paul he preaches it's such a beautiful creed it's such a simple creed Jesus died for our sins and was buried and then he rose from the dead and was seen Jesus died for our sins and was buried then he rose from the dead and was seen Jesus he died for our sins and was buried he rose from the dead and he was seen. And because of this event, we can know that we can have confidence in Jesus' claim. It's so much more than just a, a, a you know, a, the resurrection gets us to heaven. That's a beautiful thing. And if that's all that it was, that would have been plenty. But it is so, so much more. It gives us confidence that suffering is not evidence of God's absence. Because the worst thing imaginable happened to the best person to ever live. The resurrection, it gives us confidence that we will never, ever, ever, ever have to face a moment in this world where we are living without hope. I believe it was this past Tuesday or Wednesday, I got a message from a lady in our church telling me that her husband had had a massive, massive heart attack. One of the heart attacks that is the, the widowmaker, 6% survival rate. I, I told her, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm praying for you. Please let me know what I can do. And, 
She messaged back. She said, I'm on my way to the hospital. I don't think he's going to be there whenever I get to the hospital. I told her, okay, I'm on my way. And we drove over to the hospital. And by the time we got there, I hear this story of everything that had taken place and how they had already got the stents in and that everything looked like it was actually going halfway decent, that they were going to transfer him. And we gathered around amongst each other and we began to pray. And we prayed in the name of Jesus and we prayed in the power of the resurrection that we serve a God who takes dead things and makes them alive again. And we prayed and we prayed and we prayed. And I saw the, this, the, the, this lady's daughter yesterday and I asked how, how, how you know, uh, he, he was doing. And she said, it looks like he's going to get to come home today. I, that, you know, a day afterwards, he was joking around with the nurses, you know, and he was just goofing around and giving everybody a hard time. She was telling me that, 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 you know, it was just the most incredible thing that the main thing that he feels bad for now is he's struggling mentally because he feels bad for putting his wife through the fear that she experienced. Because of the resurrection, regardless of how things turn out, and this family knows this, regardless of how things turn out, you never, ever, 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 ever have to face a moment where you are living without hope. Because of the resurrection, we can know that forgiveness and grace and mercy are available to all. And this one is so huge. You've heard it a million times in your life. But I hope you can hear it with brand new ears today. Because of the resurrection, you can know that you are loved by God. Because of the resurrection, you can know that when things look their worst, God is often up to his best. And for those earliest followers, what they did not expect, they became witnesses to, and it changed the course of their entire lives. And not only did it change the course of their entire lives, it changed the course of, of, of all of human history from that point forward. And I'm here to tell you today, church, that because of the hope and the power of the resurrection, it has the power to change the course of your life too. That's what we get to celebrate today as we celebrate our risen Savior. Will you pray with me this morning? Father in heaven, I thank you for the hope that we have in you, Jesus. I thank you for the life that you live. I thank you that you put all of our sin and all of our suffering and all of our shame on your body. And you defeated it all. This doesn't have to just be some pipe dream that we hope for. This can be something that we can have confidence in that changes our entire lives. So, Father, I pray for those of us in this room today, for those of us that our hearts are sleepy and tired, apathetic. Will you awaken our hearts and will you ignite something within us?